Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Montpelier, July 28, 1809. Dear Sir, I have received yours of the 24th. The conduct of the British government in protesting the arrangement of its minister surprises one in spite of all their examples of folly. If it be not their plan, now that they have filled their magazines with our supplies and ascertained our want of firmness in withholding them, to adopt openly a system of monopoly and piracy, it may be hoped that they will not persist in the scandalous course in which they have set out. The point of most urgency seems to be the effect of the failure of the arrangement on our commercial relations with Great Britain. If the non-intercourse with her results, and it may be necessary in any mode to take official notice of it, I have thought the best to be that of a circular to the collectors, which would of course become public. Among the objections to a proclamation, revoking that of April, is the query whether that was not an act terminating the power over the subject of it. James Madison. As our opening quote suggests, the news from Britain in response to the Erskine Agreement that we discussed in episode 4.4 was not good. Before we talk more about that, though, I'd like to take the opportunity to welcome you to the presidencies of the United States. I'm your host, Jerry Landry. Special thanks to my husband, Alex, for providing the intro quote for this episode. In all areas of my life, podcast-related or not, he has been my greatest champion over the years and I cannot thank him enough for all of the encouragement he's given me on this journey, as well as his consistent willingness to record opening quotes without question. Je t'aime avec tout mon cœur, mon mari. British Minister to the U.S. David Erskine's report back to his government on the agreement he had reached with the Madison administration arrived in the hands of the British Foreign Secretary George Canning on May 22, 1809. And Canning was apoplectic. He felt that he had been rather clear in his instructions to Erskine on the three points that had to be a part of any agreement, and those three points were not present. Instead, Erskine had gone rogue, and now the British government would suffer a, quote, loss of face and national prestige at having capitulated to the weak and pitiful United States. Canning was ready to read Erskine the Riot Act then and there but he still had to put the matter before his colleagues in the Portland ministry. For three days, they discussed the agreement, and though there were some who favored accepting the agreement in order to keep the peace and keep open the trading lanes between the U.S. and Britain, ultimately, as described by historian William Masterson, quote, convinced that the collapse of the embargo destroyed economic coercion, the Portland government reaffirmed the now traditional Tory view that the ill will or belligerence of America was preferable to its economic competition. One can imagine Canning's joy in crafting a message that he sent off on May 30th, informing Erskine that he was being removed from his post. 
As we've discussed many times in the podcast, though, it would take time for this message to arrive in the American capital. In the meantime, factional discontent was growing in Congress. At some point in the spring of 1809, Secretary of the Treasury Albert Gallatin wrote to former Representative Joseph Hopper Nicholson, Democratic-Republican from Maryland, about something unusual he had found in the records of the Navy Department. He found that the Secretary of the Navy and the Jefferson administration, Robert Smith, quote, had cashed bills of exchange drawn by S. Smith and Buchanan on the firm that acted as agents to supply the American Naval Squadron in the Mediterranean during the Tripolitan War, Dagan and Perviance. The firm, S. Smith and Buchanan, was co-owned by Senator Samuel Smith, Democratic-Republican from Maryland. Samuel Smith, as we've discussed, was the brother of Secretary Robert Smith. The firm, Dagan and Perviance, quote, had failed to pay these bills of exchange because, so Gallatin thought, Samuel Smith's firm had not shipped sufficient quantities of bullion to the agents. As explained by Samuel Smith biographer Frank Castle, quote, in effect, Gallatin charged Smith with illegally holding government funds and using them for private investment rather than transshipping them promptly to Italy. Now, Samuel Smith was up for election to another term in the U.S. Senate, and at the time, senators were elected by state representatives. Nicholson, who was a long-standing enemy of Smith's, decided that he would use this information to help to change the course of the political winds in Maryland to deny Smith a return to the Senate, which, naturally, would also be to Gallatin's advantage, as he too had ended up on Smith's wrong side. The path to bringing this potential scandal to light, however, was a rather circuitous one. Nicholson wrote to Representative Nathaniel Macon, Democratic-Republican from North Carolina, who was a political ally of Representative John Randolph of Roanoke, Democratic-Republican from Virginia. Randolph then brought the matter before the House and convinced that body to appoint an investigating committee with Randolph at its head. On June 2nd, the committee began its work. After a few weeks, however, they began to realize that there was no there there. It could easily have been, quote, solved quietly as an administrative issue, but instead had been exploited for political purposes. The Smith brothers, meanwhile, knew exactly who the source of the scandal had been. By this time, word had gotten to the press, and Gallatin had been cited as a source. Thus, on June 26th, Senator Smith wrote to Gallatin, quote, denying that his business conduct was unethical, and asking for verification of Gallatin's actual remarks on the matter. As we've seen, dear listener, that question at the time could very well lead to a duel. Secretary Smith followed up on his brother's letter a few days later and, quote, accused Gallatin of attempting to tarnish his reputation. Rather than respond in a way to cool tempers, Gallatin instead opted to poke the bear and replied to Senator Smith that, quote, the transaction, such as it appears, is under all its aspects the most extraordinary which has fallen within my knowledge since I have been in this department, and threatened legal action to recover any funds inappropriately transferred. As described by Castle, Samuel Smith had a quote-unquote well-known temper, and thus replied on July 2nd, quote, ridiculing the Secretary's ignorance of even the most usual commercial practices. Meanwhile, the Smiths, thanks to a friendly member of the special committee, learned that Randolph 
in preparing the committee's report, intended to ignore evidence that exonerated them from any wrongdoing, including the testimony of the comptroller of the Navy Department that the, quote, business was perfectly legitimate. They were able to force Randolph's hand, and the report that came out cleared their names. The damage, however, had already been done. Samuel Smith's enemies had been spreading the rumors of his corruption throughout the state, and Smith had to do some quick organizational work in Maryland to ensure that candidates who were favorable to him were elected to the General Assembly that fall. With the majority of the folks elected being in support of Smith, his enemies, including Nicholson, decided the fight was done and backed down. Smith was ultimately re-elected to his seat, but this turn of events at the end of the first session would leave Samuel Smith firmly, quote, as an adversary of the Secretary of the Treasury and indeed of the entire administration. Let's turn our attention away from domestic politics for the moment and back to foreign relations. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The first session of the 11th U.S. Congress wrapped up on June 28th with congressional members thinking that Anglo-American relations were in a much better state. By that point, though, rumors had started reaching Madison that there had been some dissonance between the British government's position and what Erskine had presented in their negotiations. Indeed, Britain in April had declared, quote, a blockade on all the ports of Europe. Naturally, Erskine was summoned to provide an explanation and he, of course, dismissed all of this as triviality. Once word of their agreement had arrived in Britain, there was no doubt that everything would be followed through as had been discussed. With that reassurance, the Madisons prepared for their imminent departure from Montpelier for the remainder of the summer. But in early July, the administration learned that the Russian chargé d'affaires, André de Dashkov, had arrived in Philadelphia on July 1st. Dashkov sent a message to the American capital requesting a meeting with President Madison to formally receive him. As noted by historian Tom Armstrong, quote, Technically, as only a chargé d'affaires, Dashkov was not entitled to an introduction to the president. However, the establishment of direct relations with the Russian Empire had been a pet project of Jefferson's, and the fact that Dashkov carried a letter to Madison from Russian Tsar Alexander did not hurt. At a time of so much instability in Europe, it was crucial for the United States to establish good relations where they could. Thus, Madison delayed his departure from Montpelier for 10 days in order to be present in Washington for Dashkoff's arrival. Now, we should note that there is one more potential development in the life of the Madisons during their months in Washington at the beginning of the presidency. On May 15, 1809, Joseph Doherty, who is described by historian Elizabeth Dowling Taylor as, quote, an Irish workman on Jefferson's presidential domestic staff who stayed on for occasional employment under Madison, wrote to Jefferson asserting that, quote, Mrs. Madison cannot abide the smell of the paint. That may be on account of her pregnancy, but I think she will bring forth nothing more than dignity. We cannot conclude if this was a play on words or a literal pregnancy, 
But given that Jefferson, in his reply on May 27th, did not mention it, I would assume, and please get your grains of salt at the ready, I would assume that it was not a literal pregnancy and instead a turn of phrase. The return to Montpelier was especially sought after by the enslaved individuals who the Madisons brought to the president's house with them. In Taylor's biography of Paul Jennings, one of the enslaved individuals that traveled to Washington to serve, she notes that, quote, By July that first summer, he, i.e. Paul Jennings, must have sorely missed his mother and other connections in Virginia. By the third week of the month, they were underway. The Madisons traveled with Representative Richard Cutts, Democratic Republican from Massachusetts, and his wife, who was also Dolly's sister, Anna, and their family. They arrived at Montpelier on July 20th, and as described by Madison biographer Ralph Ketchum, quote, they arrived amid another flurry of house building. Aided by Jefferson's brickmaker, Madison had kept his kilns busy supplying materials for rebuilding the foundations and chimneys of his house. Skilled carpenters built a colonnade over the sunken ice house, one of the earliest in Virginia, that kept cool drinks and ice cream ready for the many visitors to Montpelier. Moreover, with aged mother Madison still occupying nearly half the original house, the Cutses and Washington's regular summer residence, and the number of guests sure to grow, an enlarged mansion was badly needed. The summer at Montpelier would not just be focused on construction and entertaining guests, however, as the president would soon receive distressing news. The brig Nancy landed in New York Harbor the day after the Madisons arrived back home carrying word of the British government's dismissal of the Erskine Agreement. It took a few days for the news to travel to the capital city, but on July 24th, Secretary of State Robert Smith wrote to Madison of the news, asserting that, quote, no new adjustments with our interest or honor can be made from that infatuated nation. Smith was also able to share news of the man who had been appointed to replace Erskine in Washington, Francis James Jackson. As described by Masterson, quote, the appointment of Francis Jackson to succeed David Erskine has the fascination of the irrational. Canning, having brutally disgraced the most agreeable minister yet set to America, then replaced him with the most obnoxious professional then available among British diplomats. Jackson, born in 1770, came from middle-class beginnings, but due to his father's connection with the British Foreign Secretary at the time, was able to quickly rise in the British Diplomatic Corps, starting with a clerkship appointment at the age of 15, before serving in posts at The Hague and Berlin. Masterson notes that, quote, he, i.e. Jackson, constantly pressed for advancement, and he continued to move from one assignment to another, including a posting to Constantinople. However, at the end of the 1790s, Jackson would find himself being shuffled from one Italian city to another as he and many others fled from the advancing French army. During the negotiations at Amiens, Jackson would fill in as the British ambassador in Paris. In December 1803, he married, and he and his new bride Elizabeth had three children. After a brief posting in Prussia, Jackson returned to London, where he received what would end up being his most infamous mission. In 1807, French Emperor Napoleon was putting pressure on neutral Denmark to enter into an alliance, a turn of events that the British government could not abide. Thus, as described by Masterson, quote, The Portland cabinet sent 20 ships of the line, 40 frigates, and 27,000 troops 
to demand the surrender of the Danish fleet. They would, however, need a diplomat to deliver the demand. Again from Masterson, quote, An agent to perform such international bullying would need either supreme tact or arrogant insensibility. They opted for the latter, and they opted for Jackson. Jackson sailed with the British fleet and, upon arriving, met with the Danish Prince Royal and Foreign Minister about the British offer to pay £100,000 annually in return for the Danish fleet. Quote, The demand, if refused, must be enforced by a systematic destruction of Copenhagen. You can only imagine how the Danish government took this news. The negotiations went nowhere, and thus, quote, a three-day bombardment of the city followed, killing 2,000 non-combatant civilians. Jackson watched this atrocity from the British flagship, then, with half of Copenhagen decimated, was able to send news of the Danish capitulation back to London. Upon his return to London, quote, Jackson found his errand, and particularly his performance, under attack in Parliament, and his personal browbeating of the Danish leaders under discussion at private gatherings, and he would, for the rest of his life, carry the nickname Copenhagen Jackson. British Foreign Secretary Canning, however, was pleased with Jackson's performance, and when the news of Erskine's agreement arrived a couple of years later, decided that he needed to unleash Jackson on the Americans. Jackson's reputation preceded him, and thus, Secretary Smith and the other cabinet members in Washington at the time, Secretary of the Treasury Albert Gallatin and Secretary of the Navy Paul Hamilton, realized that they needed to steal themselves for what was coming. Gallatin had been planning a trip down to Montpelier, but assumed that this latest news would bring the president back to the capital. Thus, he decided to remain in Washington and evaluate what the repudiation of this agreement would mean for American commerce and finances. Smith, meanwhile, informed Madison that he was traveling to Baltimore to meet with French minister to the U.S. Louis Toureau about the situation, and then would quickly return to the capital to await Madison. Word was also sent to Secretary of War William Eustis and Attorney General Caesar Rodney for them to return to Washington so that Madison could consult with them about the situation. In particular, the Attorney General's legal opinion would be needed to explore what the administration's options were, given the circumstances. One of the main problems weighing on Gallatin was the fact that so many American ships, after hearing of Madison's proclamation of April 19th that trade would be restored with Britain as of June 10th, had already set sail for the British Isles. Under the odious orders in council, which had been one of the points of contention before the Erskine Agreement, these ships could possibly be seized by the British Navy, and there was nothing that anyone on the eastern seaboard could do to warn the ships on the Atlantic. This would be another big blow to American commerce, just as they thought they were seeing the light at the end of the tunnel after suffering losses under the Embargo Act. Further, they would likely need to reverse course and put back into place the non-intercourse provision against Britain, if, of course, that was legally possible without further action being taken by Congress. Attorney General Rodney's opinion was desperately needed, but unfortunately, the Attorney General was nowhere to be found. Now, we talked before, both in the narrative series and the special Seat at the Table series, about how the Attorney General position was a part-time role. There was no Justice Department as there is in the modern era, 
and Rodney maintained his residency and private law practice in Wilmington, Delaware. As noted by historian Robert Rutland, quote, as chief counsel, the attorney general did not have to reside in the Capitol to earn his $3,000 salary. At times, cabinet members consulted Caesar Rodney and requested written opinions, but he was not invited to cabinet meetings unless legal problems were discussed. I haven't been able to find exactly where he was at this time, but for some reason, Rodney was not in communication with the cabinet. Thus, Madison would have to rely primarily on the opinion of his two chief advisors, the Secretary of State and Secretary of the Treasury. Robert Smith was a trained lawyer and was able to bring his legal opinion to bear in the matter. Smith wrote to Madison that he had learned from a new note from David Erskine that the British minister had, quote, taken great liberties with his instructions, which he blamed for the confusing and frustrating situation. However, Looking over the Non-Intercourse Act that Madison had invoked to restore trade relations with Britain, Smith did not see where the president had the authority to reimpose non-intercourse with Britain. The language of the act was clear. Madison could only restore relations, not block trade, without further action by Congress. Albert Gallatin, however, saw things a bit differently. Gallatin wrote to Madison that, quote, You alone can decide whether to reimpose non-intercourse on Britain through another proclamation. Gallatin felt that it was imperative to do this sooner rather than later to avoid, quote, a very serious inequality as it relates to France. All these opinions flew south to Virginia for the president to weigh in. Though irritated by this latest move by the British government, Madison was initially reluctant to return to the capital. As he wrote to Gallatin, quote, I venture to hope that my return will not be found necessary, the less so as you will be able to bring with you so full a view of the state of things and the sentiments of your colleagues that my decision, as far as necessary, may be made as well here as at Washington. He also wasn't settled on whether he could or should reimpose non-intercourse on Britain. Indeed, Madison was concerned that enforcing non-intercourse could lead to increased tensions and the British taking a harsher stance against American commerce. Ultimately, Madison yielded to the pressure from both Smith and Gallatin and made plans to return to Washington, D.C. in order to consult with his cabinet and settle the question as to whether or not he had the authority to reimpose non-intercourse on Britain. On August 4th, the president was back on the road, heading north, on a mission of, quote, mortifying necessity. Madison arrived back at the nation's capital two days later. The administration quickly settled on its response. Madison, on August 9th, issued a new proclamation asserting that, quote, Whereas it is now officially made known to me that the said orders in council have not been withdrawn agreeably to the communication and declaration aforesaid, I do hereby proclaim the same, and consequently, that the trade renewable on the event of the said orders being withdrawn is to be considered as under the operation of the several acts by which such trade was suspended. Basically, Madison concluded that, since the terms that had been agreed to had not been met by the other side of the negotiating table, it was a reset, and things were as they had been before the agreement had been reached. Was this truly legal? Historian Tom Armstrong has his doubts, but he also noted, quote, that technicalities aside, the president had no other choice in the matter, given the circumstances. 
With the business in Washington done, Madison was back on the road on August 10th to return to Orange County. Samuel Harrison Smith of the National Intelligencer and Margaret Bayard Smith had arrived in Montpelier on August 2nd, a couple of days prior to Madison's departure, and given their prominence in Washington society and national politics, it was important for him to return. Meanwhile, just a few days behind him were the Gallatins, who arrived at Montpelier shortly after Madison got back home. The entire party at Montpelier would travel to Monticello on August 24th to visit Madison's retired predecessor. As described by Ketchum, quote, The three statesmen, Jefferson, Madison, and Gallatin, mixed earnest conversation in the library with rambles about the plantation, leisurely meals, and games with the children. We'll leave them there for the time being, as we need to check in on affairs in Europe before we wrap up this episode and part ways. The government of British Prime Minister Lord Portland had never been a strong one, but 1809 greatly exposed its weaknesses. As described by historian Dick Leonard, though, quote, on paper at least, it was a strong team, in practice, it proved a great deal weaker than the sum of its parts. This was because of the lack of direction which it received from Portland, who attended cabinet meetings only spasmodically, and hardly ever the House of Lords, where he remained silent throughout his premiership. This was a particular problem as the British were engaged in active warfare against the French. The government had decided to open up a new front in the war by, quote, landing a large army at the mouth of the Scheldt River and seize Antwerp. However, when the operation launched on July 30th, it was an unmitigated disaster. One member of the cabinet, however, saw it as an opportunity. Our friend, Foreign Secretary George Canning had gotten the Prime Minister to the side and convinced him to remove the Secretary for War in the Colonies, Viscount Castlereagh, from his post if the operation in the Low Countries didn't go well. Canning had higher aims than the Foreign Office. He knew that the elderly Portland was not likely to last for much longer as PM and saw himself as a good candidate to succeed him. However, He knew that he had a few rivals among his peers, including Chancellor of the Exchequer Spencer Percival, Home Secretary the Earl of Liverpool, and of course, Castlereagh. With Castlereagh being dismissed in disgrace, Canning could then work on eliminating his other rivals. Things did not go according to plan, however. Despite the expedition's failure, Lord Portland had a change of heart and didn't immediately act to dismiss Castlereagh. He suffered, quote, an apoplectic seizure while traveling and was taken out of his carriage, speechless and insensible. He made a partial recovery of both mind and speech, but no hopes were entertained of his ultimate restoration of health. In the meantime, Castlereagh learned of what Canning had done and challenged him to a duel. The two met on Putney Heath on September 21st, and though both would survive, Canning received a slight wound. However, the duel would harm both men, as well as the Portland Ministry, in the eyes of the public, as it was seen as scandalous for two leading officers of the government to engage in a duel. Suffering from ill health already, this event was the final nail in the coffin of his ministry, and Lord Portland resigned as Prime Minister on October 4, 1809. He would not enjoy a long retirement as he suffered another seizure a few weeks later and died on October 30th.
As can be imagined, though he had served as Prime Minister on two separate occasions decades apart, Lord Portwin does not rank in the historical annals as one of the strongest Prime Ministers. As Leonard summarizes, quote, After a premiership of two years and 187 days, though more than three times as long as his first premiership, whereas he, Portwin, had played a useful role as a mediator the first time round, he was almost a complete passenger in his second administration. We'll have to see who steps into the void and succeeds Portland as Prime Minister in the next episode, as our time together is drawing to a close. Special thanks again to Alex for providing the intro quote for this episode. Special thanks also to the itinerant band for allowing us the use of clips from their rendition of Jefferson and Liberty as the intro and outro music for this episode. I'd also like to thank Christian from your podcast pal for his audio editing work. If you'd like to enlist Christian services for your podcast or audio project, you can find out more on his website at yourpodcastpal, that's all one word, dot com. Speaking of websites, you can go to Presidency's Podcast, that's all one word, dot com, to find the sources used in this episode, as well as past episodes and links to more information about all the U.S. presidents to date. Special thanks to our patrons for all the support that they provide which helps with website hosting fees and other expenses incurred with podcasting. Thanks to Matthew, Jeremy, Michelle, Ike, Joshua, Eric, Michael, Howard, and Scott. I greatly appreciate each and every one of you. If you would like to become a patron of the podcast, just go to patreon.com presidencies and sign up. If you have any questions or comments, please feel free to reach out to me at Presidencies Podcast, again, all one word, at gmail.com. You can also connect with me through social media if you haven't already. I'm available on Facebook at Presidencies, on Twitter at Presidencies89, and on Instagram at Presidencies Podcast. Again, all one word. Finally, I'd like to thank you for listening. We've gone a good ways on the journey through presidential history, but we still have much more ground to cover. Thus, I hope you'll join me next episode to continue to explore where this path is leading us. Until then, Stay safe and healthy, be kind to one another, and take care, dear friends. I'm Allison Holland, host of the Kennedy Dynasty Podcast. Equipped with a microphone and a long-term fascination of the Kennedy family, I am joined by an incredible cast of experts, friends, and guests to take you on a fun, relaxed, yet informative journey through history and pop culture. From book references to fashion to philanthropy to our modern expectations of the presidency itself, you'll see that there is so much more to Kennedy than just JFK or conspiracy theories. Join me for the Kennedy Dynasty Podcast.